Lord, as we look into your word, would you help us? Would you help our unbelief? Anything happening in our hearts or heads that might keep us from embracing you as you're revealing yourself to us, would you deal with that this morning by way of your word? We pray, God, that you'd help us to embrace you on your terms and help us to see what it is that you offer us, that you hold out to us, that we might eat and drink and be satisfied. We pray of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, throughout John, as we've seen, right, but especially here in chapter 6, Jesus wants to get beneath the surface with those who are pursuing him in order to really speak to their deepest needs. The needs below the surface, okay. So this won't be anything new to you if you've been with us through John, but what it means for us is that in order to understand this week's passage, we really need to back up again to the last two weeks. I've said earlier that these miracles that Jesus is performing, that John is recording here, are being recorded very intentionally. And Jesus is doing these things very intentionally. He's communicating something about who he is to his hearers, to, his, to John's readers. Okay, so we need to go back and remember some context. Do you remember the question that Jesus asked Philip in the text two weeks ago? The feeding of the 5,000. He looks at Philip, he directs his question to Philip, he says, where are we to buy bread that these people may eat? And you know, I said that there were at least two purposes behind Jesus' question. First of all, if you remember, he demonstrates compassion in this question, that despite knowing what's in these people's hearts, uh, something we're going to talk about more this morning, he desires to feed the crowds. He has compassion on them. He knows they need something to eat, and so he feeds them. So compassion is one reason, but he also sees an opportunity for discipleship. He sees an opportunity to disciple those who are following after him, um, to expose the need that his disciples have for him. Right. But let me add a third reason now as we come to this next section in John 6. A third reason that Jesus would ask this question and that John would highlight it in his retelling of these events. Jesus wants to get beneath the surface, speak to our deepest needs. That is to say, listen, in order to understand this passage, we, need, we really need to understand how first century Israel, the, the culture, the context, differs so greatly with the context in which we live right now. And in particular, we need to understand the significance of bread in the first century and the significance of work, as we'll see a little bit later on. But first, bread. We've talked about it a little bit already in John because it's such a crucial image that's going to keep coming up again and again. But it actually doesn't contain the same meaning in our culture. And I would argue, as of recent years, it contains the opposite meaning in our culture in a lot of ways. So I want to explain, but we need to draw a distinction here. We have a very different understanding of bread, very much opposite in our culture and increasingly so, increasingly so, really even over the period of the last five years. Bread is kind of the thing, I mean, everybody wants, we, we all like it. It's good. Most of us like it. I won't speak for everybody. Most of us like it. A nice warm slice of bread with some butter on it, right? It's the thing everyone wants, but it's also the thing that everyone tries to avoid if possible. 
What's the one thing that we feel like we can cut out that would probably be good for us if we cut out? It'd be bread, right? This is why Jimmy John's makes a lot of money serving these unwitches, sandwiches without bread, meat and cheese wrapped up in lettuce, right? Because this is like this is the healthy approach now. Keto, ketogenic diet, it's health, this is the healthy way to eat. I'm not saying it's not healthy. Avoiding gluten is seen as responsible. Some people probably should, right? But the point is, our culture is kind of averse to bread. It's nice, you know, on occasion, but yeah, take it easy with the bread, you know? And even if you're not bread-averse, even if you're like, Jeremy, I do not have that problem, you're going to have the challenge of figuring out which of the 20,000 kinds of bread to bring home from the supermarket. Like, that is the most stressful aisle anywhere, right? Trying to figure out what kind to bring home. It's pretty overwhelming because bread's just ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Both of those factors are precisely the opposite in first century Israel. If you look, actually, if you look more closely at Jesus' question and you take him at face value, okay, you, you see exactly what bread meant for Israel. Where are we to buy bread? What does he say? That these people may eat. There it is. That's what bread meant in first century Israel. Bread is a staple of the diet. We don't really have a staple in the American diet, right? They had a staple. This is a, obviously, obviously a non-industrialized industrialized agrarian culture in the first century. So if you didn't have bread in this context, bread and fish were the staples, but if you didn't have bread, the likelihood would be that you'd starve. Bread was considered to be life-sustaining. Okay, it wasn't something you'd seek to avoid to get life and health. Something that you needed to have if you were to have life. And so the deeper issue that Jesus wants to address in this context, starting back two weeks ago, is this question. Where do we look for life? That's the sermon title, if you look at your notes. Where do we look for life? What is it, or even who is it, that you believe ultimately sustains your life, gives you life, makes your life possible? That if you didn't have it, whether it's a person or an occupation or a certain amount of money, but if you didn't have it, you'd be in ruin. It's the thing that occupies your thoughts when you don't have to think about anything, when you're sitting on the couch, when you're driving home from work. It's the thing that you do when you finally have some downtime or the thing that you're scrolling and looking at on your phone, right? When you don't have to be doing anything else. The thing that you're most passionate about. Because listen, it's easy for... I think especially for Christians in our culture, in our time, when there's just an abundance of entertainment and comfort and uh, trappings of all different kinds offered to us every single week. Things that compete for our attention, things that vie for our affection. So easy for us to give lip service and say, oh yeah, Jesus is the most important thing to me. But often then the way we live our lives, the things we pursue day to day, demonstrate something else to be our passion and our energy, you know? And sometimes we don't even realize it. So this morning, as we look into the text, I want you to look at the sermon title again. Maybe circle it. Um, set your eyes on it now. Put this question at the forefront of your minds. Where do you look for life? Where do you look for life? Jesus is addressing this question. And he addresses it really by drawing out what's happening under the surface in three sections of the text He's really kind of peeling back one layer at a time to expose the problem at the front end and what he's giving as his answer in the middle, right? So he's kind of peeling back a layer at a time to go deeper, to go under the surface. 
beginning in verses 22 to 25. So if you remember, the crowds from whom Jesus escaped, back in verse 15, a couple of weeks ago, knowing they wanted to take him by force and make him king, they're pursuing him again. And they ask him a question. So let's read that. Verse 22, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats, went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So it's really important to understand, on the next day is referring to the day after Jesus feeds the 5,000, the day after Jesus walked on water out to his disciples who were struggling at sea. So the day following that miracle, the crowds continue to pray, to, to pursue Jesus. They, they, they saw Jesus multiply the barley loaves. Remember that? If you missed any of these, feel free to go back and listen. It's going to help make a lot of sense of this. They saw Jesus multiply the barley loaves. They had their stomachs filled. They liked it. So they wanted to make him king. You know, but now they notice something quite odd. Remember, Jesus went off to be by himself. So they wanted to make him king. Then it's like, well, wait, where did he go? Kind of slipped away from us. The disciples don't know where, where he went either. And so where did he go? So they notice he's not there anymore. They also see that the disciples get into a boat alone. They set off to sea without Jesus. And now some of them are finally arriving by foot to the other side of Galilee. And they notice only one boat has arrived on the opposite shore, the same boat uh, that the disciples climbed in together without Jesus. But Jesus is there. Like he's been with them the whole time. So uh, they're wondering, wait, whoa, when did you get here? How did this happen exactly? You know, how did you get over here so fast if you didn't go by boat? Like we, we walked it. We didn't see you along the way. We didn't see you out in front of us. So it's intriguing to them. But the first layer that Jesus desires to peel back, if you, look at the, if you look at your notes, this is the question behind their question. That's what Jesus wants to expose, that they really have something else they're getting at. They have a question behind their question. They have another need. This is something that John does with regularity. If you remember back in chapter 1, the religious leaders come to John the Baptist and John kind of exposes, they have a question for him, but there's a question underneath their question related to, to, to Jesus. Well, here it's similar. The question behind the question of this crowd is whether Jesus performed another sign. They have signs on the brain. They're pursuing Jesus as this miracle worker, right? These people are chasing signs and really they're desiring to benefit from them the same way they did earlier in the chapter. And so Jesus, they kind of see Jesus as a performer, Someone who can do things for them. And they've just kind of seen and learned he can do things for them that they can benefit from, right? So it's kind of like following after him and they're like, ah, 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 come on, let's go. Like more, more, more. Right? And I remember even just recently watching, watching this uh, interview of comedians who do impressions. And there are a few comedians that if you, if you listen to these guys, if you, if you close your eyes and you listen to the celebrity impressions or the political impressions that they do, close your eyes, it's like, man, I cannot tell the difference. And some of those guys have such a very weird and bizarre gift that they, you know, can use to just mimic other people. But I was listening to one of them share the story that, yeah, anytime I go out to dinner with friends, now all they do is they look at me and they're like, do Trump, you know? Uh, oh, yeah, 
do, do uh, whoever, like, whoever the, the latest actor is or political person is. And he's like, it's just so tiring because I feel like, you know, and in that case, well, he is an entertainer, right? But in this case, Jesus is not. He's not a miracle worker in the sense that he's going from town to town to perform these signs. And yet the people are, are pursuing him in this very similar kind of a way. They're treating him like he's kind of this trained monkey who's going to do me another sign. He's a genie who's attached to a lamp that I can rub, right? That's, that's the idea here. And in doing this, they really continue to miss the primary reality, boy, do they ever, surrounding Jesus, who he is, what he actually is saying about himself. And so there's some irony in the text here. Carson is really helpful. He says, they address him as rabbi, betraying their own confusion and uncertainty. He says, they acknowledge him as teacher, though they're about to dispute his teaching. They clamor for him as king, verse 15, though they understand little of the nature of his reign, little of the nature of his kingship. And it's interesting because this still happens today, related to Jesus, right? I mean, it's so easy. These crowds acknowledge Jesus as teacher, a good teacher, but they dispute his teaching. In our cultural moment, we have no problem as a culture, as a collective culture, addressing Jesus as a teacher, talking about him that way, mentioning him as a good teacher. Even though when he teaches, like when we read what he said, we don't like what he has to say. And there are a whole like groups of scholars like the Jesus Seminar who've been dedicated to saying, oh, Jesus probably didn't actually say those things. He's a good teacher, except when he says things I disagree with. And that's what's happening in the text. See, the question, the question they ask means both when did you get here? Like it can be interpreted both ways. When did you get here? And how long have you been here? So the, the people pretty obviously have signs on the brain. They're trying to figure this out and piece this together. They're pursuing him for these signs. They want more. They want the, we said it in the past few weeks, like they want the stuff that Jesus offers, but not Jesus. You know, they want Jesus as they desire Jesus to be, not Jesus as he's revealing himself to them, right? So we've seen this again and again. That's the question behind their question. But it leads once again to another layer that Jesus kind of peels back to go under the surface. It's the reality beneath the miracle. There's a reality beneath the miracle that they've continued to miss throughout. And so now Jesus wants to be very straightforward about it. And it's interesting because in this reality beneath the miracle, if you look at verse 26 where this begins, Jesus doesn't actually answer their question. And we might think to ourselves, like, why not? Like, if I was Jesus' campaign manager, right? If you were Jesus' campaign manager, wouldn't you be like pulling him aside being like, listen, Jesus, you are missing an excellent PR moment and you're not really very good at PR, I feel like. And so I, I can help you with this. Um, I, you should talk about this. guy impress people, you know? And it's true, right? Like, it would have it impressed the people for him to be like, you want to know how I got here? I walked just like you, but I walked over over Lake Tiberias. I walked over the Sea of Galilee, right? Um, but impressing people, the reason Jesus doesn't appear to be very good at PR to a campaign manager, and we'll see that develop here even shortly in 6 and 7, uh, is because he has not been, nor will he ever be, interested in impressing people. That's not his aim. I mean, we've talked about this a lot before too, right? The Trinity, right? Um, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit from eternity past, perfect union and relationship from within the Godhead. Jesus has no need of anyone else. He has no need to impress. He has 
perfect acceptance from the Father and from the Spirit, perfect love from within the Godhead. So that's not his concern. Instead, his concern is to pinpoint their reason for asking the question. He doesn't even answer. Pinpoints their reason for asking. Verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. All right, let's talk. Let's have some real talk here. The signs are important to you because of the stuff it offers you, right? It fills you up, right? Here we see Jesus verifying exactly what we've been saying for the last few weeks. He's saying, listen, you don't want me. You want my stuff. I mean, yeah, you want me. You want me as your king, but you want me as king because you saw me do this miraculous sign. What you failed to see was what the sign signified, right? He says, listen, you have an entirely materialistic understanding of my kingdom. Entirely materialistic understanding. You failed to see what underlies it, you know? And this is very similar to Nicodemus. What does Nicodemus have in chapter 3? Do you remember? An entirely materialistic understanding of God's kingdom. So, so when we look at the new birth, when Nicodemus hears about this, the new birth of the kingdom of God, he says, can a man go back into his mother's womb a second time and be born? It's entirely materialistic. Or when um, the woman at the well thinks she's, that Jesus is talking about physical water. Or like Philip, when he's, try, when he's thinking about how to feed these people only according to the amount of bread they'd be able to buy with a certain amount of money at the marketplace, right? It's all like earthly, temporary, materialistic. That's how they still view God's kingdom, that God's kingdom will come and do something for them on this earth politically with the Romans and like health and wealth with the, the healing of the sick and putting food in my belly, right? That, that's the idea here. Jesus is challenging this materialistic understanding of why he's come, this earthly understanding. Jesus must have come to give us life, they're saying, by giving us some materialistic thing, either some earthly power or some earthly thing that we want that he can finally give us. That's the idea they have, and it's the idea we can often have about Jesus too. We're going to talk more about it this morning. We try to attach the reason Jesus came to something we think he can give us because we don't actually think about what it means to find life in Jesus, that Jesus has given us himself for life. We still, you know, we're still actually finding life in all these things that are competing for our attention, competing for our affections. We find life in these things, and we oftentimes see Jesus as like the means to those things. Jesus is a nice add-on to my life that maybe makes it possible for me to have more of the things that I really want, you know? Like those things are still functionally our gods. Functionally, they're our idols. They're our gods. We serve them like our gods. But Jesus just kind of becomes the means to our gods, like the, the mediator between us and our idols, rather than God himself entered into human history to save us from our idolatry and sin. And we're, okay, we're going to say more about that. So that's kind of the idea here at the front end. So Jesus says to them, do not labor for food that perishes. Here's his response to that. Do not labor for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. You know, this is where we need to really understand work in a first century context versus work for today. Because if you were to ask somebody in first century Israel, why do you work? They'd look at you sideways. And they'd say, so we can eat. Because upwards of 80 to 90% of your 
weekly income would go towards food. And so we start to see some of why they're pursuing Jesus for food. Because if he comes to deliver them bread all the time, to feed them all the time, well, they're set, you know. So Jesus is saying in this by saying, don't labor for food that perishes. He's saying, look, yeah, you had bread yesterday. Yeah, it was good, and it was for your, for your good. It was, I was compassionate toward you in it. You had your stomach filled. You liked it, but at the end of the day, it was still just physical bread that perishes with this world. You eat it, but then you get hungry again. Even your response to it doesn't last. It doesn't satisfy you in any kind of an ultimate way. Jesus is asking this same question again. Where are you looking for life? What are you pursuing? He's, he's saying, listen, what you should be pursuing isn't the miracle itself, but the reality beneath the miracle, upholding it, performing it. What you should be pursuing is, is me. What you should be pursuing is eternal. Eternal, not temporary. Not temporary. Another way of asking it is, why would you pour your energy into things that will go away? You know, your passion, this, this life is short. Even if you're, even if you're blessed in an old, to, to live an old, to an old age, to have a long life by our standards, it's still a very short life by history's standards. So why would you pour your energy, all of your energies and commitment into things that will evaporate? Why would you pour your hope into shifting sand? Sand that can easily shift under your feet, not only can easily, but it's a guarantee that it will. It's, it's a guarantee that it will. Like, when you put your ultimate hope in a relationship, we understand relationships can fail us. A person can fail us and, and will fail us. For a variety of reasons, it can change. When we put our ultimate hope in money, we're putting our hope in something that doesn't come with us after death and that it's fleeting even in this life. Our financial circumstances outside of our control can change like that. Right? When we put our hope, our ultimate hope as Christians in politics or a political candidate or a party, we put our hope into something that can change tomorrow, you guys. You know, the political makeup of a country or even a state can change in an instant. We've all seen it. But that's not where Christians find their hope. So like when a state radically shifts in its political agenda in a way that is troubling or upsetting, Christians don't have to panic like everything's done and falling apart, right? Christians can find a hope actually in an eternal category rather than a temporary one. Does that mean we're not concerned about these things? Absolutely not. Does that mean we don't contend? Absolutely not. Does that mean we don't have to make hard decisions in light of them? Of course not. We do and we should. But what it does mean is that our, our hope is found in nothing less than Jesus and his righteousness. It does mean he's an eternal hope rather than a temporary one. And that temporary hope that I just described, this is what is happening in first century Israel. This is exactly the context. And the crowd completely misunderstands Jesus. They're like us. They hear Jesus say, don't labor for food, right? And their default mode is to slip into a desire to perform, you know, do something that can merit their way forward. Jesus tells them, don't labor for food that perishes. He's telling them, listen, perishing food isn't a worthwhile pursuit. Temporary things are not a worthwhile ultimate pursuit. They can't bring true hope or peace or joy. That's not what they heard. Verse 28, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? In other words, Jesus is trying to point them to the reality beneath the miracle, but all they can think to ask following his desire to direct them to himself is what requirement that God has for me do I need to do in order to, to 
you know, be good in this way so that I can get what I need to get. You know, tell me what to do and I'll do it. This is our default mode. Like, Jesus is saying, he's actually saying the opposite. He's saying, look, you need to come to terms with me. Like, you need to come to terms with who I am. You need to trust entirely in me to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And their response immediately is, okay, what do I need to do? It's really hard to trust entirely in Christ. Grace, sheer grace is scary because it means you lose control. It means you're, you're yielding control to the one who has all control. It's a scary thing to do. It's deeply ingrained. Give me more law to follow is an easy thing to slip back into. Give me stuff that I can check off a list so I can come before the Father and show him what I've done. But what's striking here isn't just that they misunderstand Jesus in this way, but that they don't seem to have any doubt as it relates to their inability to live up to God's standard. They don't see that in the end they won't be able to do it. So Jesus sets the record straight again. Verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him. So who's it, who's it a work of? God. Right. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. They're asking, what does God require of us? What can we do? Jesus says, well, you can't do anything. You can't work toward anything because the work of God, it's his work, not yours. What he actually requires of you is faith in what he's done. It's a realization that you can't do anything. All you can do is come before the Father with empty hands and rely on, on what Christ has done. And it's not just some... It's not just some kind of like general, squishy, relativized kind of faith in Jesus. If it was, Jesus would have no problem with these people coming to him because they have a kind of faith. They want to make him king, you know. Jesus is on their terms. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. It's not some kind of squishy, relativized kind of faith. It's a faith in the one God has sent. It's a faith that he can do precisely that for which God sent him. And so it's a faith in Jesus as Jesus reveals himself, not a faith in Jesus that you want him to be right so the people respond to jesus and their response demonstrates exactly the kind of hard-heartedness that jesus is implying that he's dri driving at here verses 30 to 31 so they said to him then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you what work do you perform our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as, as it is written he gave them bread from heaven to eat and you know maybe the temptation is to read this and maybe it's not a bad thing initially. It's just to read this and say, man, if I was Jesus, there's no way I'm putting up with this. Because this is one day after Jesus fed them out of five loaves. One day, you guys, after this. And, and, and you know, uh, now here they are saying, well, Jesus, what sign can you perform that we might believe in you? This is where you run and be like, um, I don't know, anyone remember yesterday? <laughs> five loaves? Well over 5,000 people, 20,000 of you, until you were full, 12 baskets left over, ringing any bells, you know? Why on earth would the people ask this? Well, again, because they're like us, okay? And because Jesus is right about the human condition. They've got a purely materialistic understanding, an entirely materialistic understanding of his kingdom. In other words, they're hungry. You know, it's like, if any of us would still read through John and we would say, I still don't understand what's wrong with pursuing Jesus on the basis of his signs. This is what's wrong. 
because it's never enough. It's never enough. This happened yesterday, and they're back, and they're like, what sign do you perform that we might believe in you? It's never enough. Yeah, but Jesus, that was yesterday. What have you done for us lately? What are you going to give us today? What are you going to do for us now? And they kind of hint at what they mean. You know, Moses, remember in verse 15 they said, they thought he was the prophet. The prophet's like, the prophet like Moses that Deuteronomy says, a prophet like Moses will arise. So it's like, if you're that prophet, if you're a prophet like Moses, well, let's remember what Moses did, Jesus. Moses did this for his people every day by providing manna. You did it once. All right. Good start. If you're the prophet we thought you were, you'll do it over and over. You'll keep filling our stomachs. That's the idea. So Jesus responds again, verses 32 to 33. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives the true bread from heaven. A couple of comments. First of all, Jesus is saying, look, you make far too much of Moses and far too little of God and his faithfulness and trustworthiness and goodness and provision to you. That's what that was all about. But it was more than that, too, because he says, but my father gives the true bread, the true bread. Okay, do you remember the, this word, this phrase? Remember kind of what, the, how John's used it so far? So it was starting right away, chapter 1, verse 9, the true light came into the world. And we said true has a couple of different meanings there. One of them is like true and better. And there's this theme throughout John. Jesus is the true and better light. He's the true and better We've seen some examples. Bronze serpent. The serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness that if Israel looks upon it, they'll be healed. He's the true and better temple we saw in chapter 2. He's the true and better Passover lamb we saw a few weeks ago. He pointed this out in a few different spots. And so Jesus is this, Jesus is saying, he starts telling him, it's me. The bread of God come from heaven. The one who comes down from heaven to give you eternal life is me. And they respond, Sir, give us this bread always. It echoes the statement made by the woman at the well in chapter 4. Sir, give me this water so that I shall not be thirsty. And, um, you know, I think it would be remiss not to come back to it again and again. Isn't Jesus patient? Isn't he patient with us? How often does this crowd need to keep coming back to this material again and again and again after, after like, explanation after explanation and Jesus hears this question behind it. Don't you see reminders throughout, throughout this narrative of his loving kindness and patience with us who initially are far from God because we have no understanding of God and we couldn't understand him. We couldn't seek for God but by grace and mercy he made a way that we might, right? In the midst of that misunderstanding he's patient, he's loving, he's kind. See the question behind their question was that Jesus was what Jesus could do for them. It demonstrated they had wrong motives in pursuing Jesus. But the truth of the matter is, this is our stories. Like, how often do we have wrong motives in pursuing Jesus even now? How, how often do we need this reminder of the reality beneath the miracle? The reality of Jesus himself offered up for his people. How often do we want Jesus only really to fill our stomachs and make some earthly pursuit easier? You know? It's, it's difficult. It's like, there's a reason, especially in our, especially in our Western industrialized 21st, you know, the culture in which we live is so filled with this kind of entertainment, 
these things that vie for our affections that we talked about earlier, that, you know, all kinds of earthly pleasures and comforts that are just at our fingertips. And so there's a reason that the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel has such a following in our culture, but make no mistake, that same, they're, yes, they're an easy target, but listen, that, that same health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, it's, it has traction everywhere. It has a following in almost every culture, and that's what's happening here in the text. This idea that Jesus came to do something for me materially. My health, my wealth, my prosperity. And you know, there's also a reason that Christian nationalism is gaining traction in our culture. Placing our ultimate hope in earthly realities and seeing Jesus as the means to those earthly realities isn't anything new. I'll tell you this, if you listen to the way that a lot of Christian nationalist teachers use their Old Testament, and then you listen to the exact same exegesis from a health, wealth, prosperity preacher, it's the same exegesis. They're saying the same thing. They're using these Old Testament texts to make the same point that Jesus came to do this thing for us now, here, materially. They're using the exact same thing. They're just saying, you know, different ends. It's not anything new. It's what the crowd was doing. It's what we continue to do now. And ultimately, that's because in these cases, the gospel has been muddled beyond all recognition. These passages that are about Jesus and what he came to do ultimately at the cross become somehow about something that we think Jesus can give me right now in a primary kind of way. The gospel becomes muddled. And so Jesus unmuddles it by thirdly now giving us the claim at the base of the narrative. Number three, the final kind of layer that peels back. Jesus says, yes, there's this reality under the miracle, but now here's the claim. Here's the central claim that he makes. Verses 35 to 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I am. Ego eimi, remember from last week. It is I, Jesus standing out on the lake, calls to his disciples, it is I, the same words, ego eimi. I am very God of very God. My presence, the presence of that God with you is what gives you life. I am the bread of life. God himself is the bread of life. God himself gives you life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Okay, so... Jesus is speaking metaphorically, and, he's, and, and this is going to be important heading into next week. But he's kind of, kind of bobbing in and out of metaphor, you know. So I am the bread of life. The bread of life is metaphor, obviously, right? So he's, I, I, I am the one who sustains life, the one who gives life. But then he kind of comes out of the metaphor a little bit. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Right, like, you can come to bread and still die of hunger. You have to eat it, right? You can believe in water and still die of dehydration. You have to drink it. Right? So Jesus is saying, essentially, this bread of life is received by coming to Jesus as the one who can do for us what we can't do for ourselves, by believing upon his name, by coming to him instead of coming to ourselves, by believing upon him instead of believing in us. So, right, so he's coming in and out, and we'll see that more as we head into next week's text. But he says, I, but I, I say it, said to you that you have seen me and yet, do not believe. There's a question, right? And the que because the reality is, the only way that Jesus can't actually do for us what he claims he can do for us in this text is if he fails. If he fails to bring life. If he fails his people in some respect. And so the question, right, um, and there's a few guys who continue to point this out in John 6. 
the question that kind of comes out with verse 36 is, uh, has, has Jesus f- failed? Because here he says, there are those who have seen him and do not believe. So then verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. No, he has not failed. All who come to him will never be cast out. And everyone given to him will come to him. So this is what's known, you know, it's a figure of speech, a common figure of speech, literary device. It's called the Lydides. Um, a couple of commentaries define it as uh, something, affir- something is affirmed by negating its contrary. Or another way of putting that is you affirm one thing by denying the opposite. So, hey, there were a lot of people at the Twins game yesterday. Oh, yeah, not a few, right? So you deny the opposite, affirm the the original statement. All the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He's reinforcing this claim. How much is this the case? He says, well, or how is this the case? For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. I come at the Father's behalf. This is how I can keep you secure. How how far does this extend? This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. Your security in him. Upon coming to Jesus and believing upon his name, he holds you with the kind of security that can never be cast out to the extent that he raises you up on the last day, that this life isn't about this life, but it's, it's a life that goes on for all eternity in him and through him. And so verse 40, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the good news of the passage. The people had a desire for continually having their stomachs filled. You fed us one time, big deal, our fathers were fed every day, adding to that in verse 34, from now on give us this bread. Why? Because they thought the bread from heaven needed to be given again and again and again. They thought about it in temporary terms. This would be bad news because it'll never satisfy. They want another meal, but Jesus tells them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and you have me forever. I satisfy forever. Why do we no longer hunger? Because we have Jesus. I think the teaching of the text is perfectly clear. If we have him, we're satisfied. If we strive after the temporary. This is why the question, what gives you life, is at the center of the text. Something we need to wrestle with. Because, like, listen. If we have him, we're satisfied. If we strive after the temporary, false gods, idols, If we put something other than Christ as our primary good, our greatest good, our primary hope, we will always be striving. Even when we have that thing, whatever that thing is, we'll always just be worried we're going to lose the thing. We'll never rest. We'll never find peace. We'll never find satisfaction. And there's a litany of stories of people who lived their whole life for this greatest good and they they had it but they were never satisfied it was never enough they were like these people they kept coming back for more and more and more and more it never satisfied there was no rest there's always hunger again the satisfaction whatever it is that we're striving for will always be nothing in comparison to what Christ can offer us and whatever satisfaction we think we have will never last but when we see that the end result of the gospel is that now by grace through faith in Christ coming to him believing upon him to do for us what we can't do for ourselves we have communion with God we have communion with communion with the one who created us 
We have access to him. We can draw near to him. As we've seen in previous weeks, we can make much of him. We now have a satisfaction that's eternal. So David Wells wrote this book, God in the Whirlwind. And the book is about suffering in the life of the Christian. It's about what it looks like to face trials and tribulation. And he talks about, you know, what's the remedy for this? He says, the goal of Christ's redemption was that we might know God, right? So for Wells, he's saying, knowing God is the difference maker. So much more than having what we think we want or what we think we need. He says, the goal of Christ's redemption was that we might know God, love him, serve him, enjoy him, and glorify him forever. This is indeed our chief end. It was for this end that Christ came, was incarnate, died in our place, and was raised for our justification. It was that we might know God. And Jesus here is saying, no part of that promise of what I did for you upon the cross, taking your sin upon myself that you might know me and have me, no part of that's based on you. We'll see, we'll see that even more clearly next week, right? Jesus shoulders the whole thing at the cross, and we find that we can and must rest on his sheer grace, his unshakable power to save us. On the one hand, in verse 36, we see this like compassionate warning like we saw at the beginning of the passage last week. That though these people see Jesus, they don't believe, right? There's a failure to believe, to believe. And faith is what's required of them. This continued question behind the question, though, they fail to believe. But on the other hand, what we see in verses 37 to 40 is nothing less than what John Piper refers to as the invincible success of God to give eternal life. Invincible success of God to give eternal life to his people, to those who call out upon his name. The question with which we need to wrestle this morning is, do you believe this? What gives you life? Where do you look for life? Do you attempt to find it in your own work, in your own power, under your own strength? Do you find it in a temporary earthly comfort, an earthly treasure? Do you find it in some kind of like promise of earthly power via politics? Or do you recognize that the only thing that can truly give life has been offered up in Jesus who went to the cross on our behalf that we might know him, that we might have him, that we might be joined to him? This is what the table preaches every week. And I want to be clear I'll be clear next week on this, but I don't think John 6 is talking about the, the Lord's table. I don't. I don't think John's alluding to the table. I, I think John is writing this knowing that his readers will make connections. But I don't think he's writing this alluding to the table. Get, we'll get into my reasons for that more next week. But as New Testament scholar Colin Brown writes, he says, John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper. Rather, the Lord's Supper is about what's described in John 6. Why? Because the, John 6 describes the cross work of Christ. And the table is about the cross work of Christ. His body broken for us, his blood shed for us, that we might have union with God. And so, if you're a believer, we're declaring belief to one another. You know, this is really significant. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This, for us as Christians, is an expression of our belief. You know, this is an expression, it's a declaration to one another that we believe. And so if you're a Christian, this meal is for you this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, well, make this your first communion as a believer. Throw yourself upon his mercies. But otherwise, we say, come up and don't touch. You can observe, you can look 
ask questions. This meal is for believers. So I invite you, if you're a believer in Christ, I'm going to invite you in a moment to come forward and take of the elements.